Hello, and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop, and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Joining me on today's episode is Scott Pru, Chief Technology Officer at CSG. Scott is an industry-recognized leader and international speaker on DevOps and enterprise transformation, and sits on the program committee for DevOps Enterprise Summit. As a 20-year technology industry veteran, who has broad experience building and leading high-performing teams across development and operations functions for companies ranging from small startups to large enterprises. Scott and I chat regularly, and he recently introduced me to his revamped DevOps portfolio management approach. I find the clarity of his thinking and of his approach to elevate the principle of DevOps to the business spot on, and I'm always amazed and entertained by how his stories bring these principles to life. Listen on to hear about Scott's take on value stream and portfolio management, architecture, and culture. Welcome to the Project to Product podcast, everyone. And I am here with Scott Pru, the CTO at CSG. And Scott and I have been talking flow and value streams and product transformations for, for many years now. He's been an inspiration to me in terms of his work, in terms of the achievements he's had at CSG and elsewhere. And I think he's actually one of the foremost thinkers in terms of how we transition from proxy metrics and activities to actually stable product value streams and, and measuring the flow of value. So I'm... Um, Quite excited to have him here. Scott has put together something that's been just, I think, a, a fascinating model around DevOps portfolio management in these three domains. So, Scott, I, I can't wait to dig into that. But first, I would just love you to recount some of that story that, that actually introduced you to me, which was your 2014 DevOps Enterprise Summit talk. And I think it, it had something to do with print shops. So, so uh, refresh my memory. And for those who haven't heard it, if you could tell us that story, that'd be excellent. Well, excellent. And, and Mick, thank you so much. I'm uh, really honored to, to be here. And uh, I, I appreciate the, uh, the praise and the partnership that we've had uh, over the years. Um, it has really been great. And I've learned uh, way more from you than, uh, than uh, you from me. So I, I think you know, how I originally got into this community was, is really a, a bit of the story that, that you talked about. You know, I, uh, was really working on kind of work transformation and and uh, and and transformation, Agile Agile transformation at CSG. We have a print shop, and we would always go visit the print shop because it was just really fascinating to see. You know, we 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 sent about seventy million pieces of mail out um, every month. The managers of the print shop they really run a fantastic uh, system, very lean. They have this row, and they call it row one. the The manager is always excited and is always showing me row one. He's like, "Hey, look at this! There's all these carts." I said, what do those carts do? He said, well, these carts represent jobs that we put in the system. And you know, I kind of like scratch my head. I'm like, well, the, you've got computers and we actually fill you know, those computers with all the jobs you're supposed to print. Like, why do you need these carts? He's like, he's like, because this represents our job and materials release. Each one of these carts represents a job of millions of pieces of paper. And on the cart, we actually have you know, tagged you know, the materials that we need. And when someone wants to put a job in the system, they have to go over to a cart. And the physical activity of taking that cart, moving it, and putting it in the system is significant because they're releasing work. I was like, well, that's fascinating. And so what I would do is I would then take our IT project managers to the same spot on the floor. We'd drive over there and we'd look at it. And I would say, hey, this, tell them how this works. And then I would say, when we release work into our IT system, i.e., we start epics, we, we call them much of these large efforts. How do we do this? How do we understand that we have the jobs and materials, i.e. the people 
and the money and all that other stuff to um, to do the work. And I would always really kind of get just kind of blank stares because like they didn't know. And so I thought that was kind of a fascinating story. And then when I read the Phoenix Project, that you know the first time, I was like. I, I was convinced, and and everyone has this experience when they read it, that Gene Kim was following them around because the story of the Phoenix Project was, uh, of course, you know, part of it was about manufacturing and really the relationship between manufacturing and IT. And I find, found myself kind of in that same world. So that's how I kind of got introduced to the DevOps uh, community was through Gene Kim and through that story because I told him that same story and he called me the next day. And and so there's I think there's so much to unpack in that story because there's you know there's cues there's just the, the visibility the fact that these work is visible the release of work and the intake of work is visible yeah and then of course all the work in progress and everything else that we deal with day to day so I, what what happened then what did you do with that that inspiration from the print shop the you know, what you learned from I think like you said a lot of us realized yeah Gene just characterized what we're seeing everywhere. Uh, you illustrated it, or you saw it actually within your own organization. What what did you do next? Yeah, so I mean, this that, that story is from a time frame. Let's call it about 2012, when we were struggling with this problem of just not being able to complete work. You know, we would we would look at projects. Um, we would actually look at Epics. Actually, the software development side of our organization had Epics. Our IT side of the organization had projects, and so that's a, another kind of piece of the story. But at the end of the day, we were not completing what we wanted to complete very quickly. Things would just stall. Epics and projects would sit out there for years and not get completed. So we continued to look at this and try to understand why we weren't finishing things. And at the end of the day, what we discovered is we would have close to about 200 large efforts in flight kind of in any one time, and we were only completing a couple of them a year. And uh, so we went through kind of a rigorous analysis of collecting and really getting all that work together. Well, it's not even analysis, it's just collecting. Do we have that list of everything? And then really looking at that, prioritizing that list, but also really looking at the dependencies and in essence, the kind of job and materials, like the different people and teams that were required to deliver it, and began to kind of limit the the whip that we put into the system. And we started looking at it. We did some kind of simple dependency. We would find certain teams, and of course, the you know highly centralized teams, especially around system administration, network storage, you know, uh, other shared groups. They were some of them were three hundred percent overbooked, and you know, we would then have teams waiting on them. So basically, what would happen is you would have a team that says, "Hey, I want to start some work," and they'd be like, "Well, I can do this work." But the dependencies on these other teams started to then become kind of you know bottlenecks in the system that they couldn't complete the work because they had dependency on another team. And so what we had to start doing is one, recognize that we, we couldn't start that much work at once, but also we had to look at the work and make decisions around the dependencies of what we could and couldn't start. So you can't, you can't start seven projects that all depend on the same seven teams we had to basically make differentiated decisions about what we could get done based on those dependencies. So, Scott, I, I imagine to any uh, print shop floor manager that having three hundred percent overbooking sounds completely crazy. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> but the the thing that I'm seeing, and I think I think as you just illustrated, is in in almost every single large organization, the amount of flow load or or, or whip that we see. Compared to the capacity, is two, three, four, five x, 
right? We've, yeah. We're now looking at cues of epics, of features and the like that are, it's, it, I used to be shocked by it about a couple of years ago. I'm no longer surprised to see 24 month cues, right? And, and yeah. meantime, of course, the crazy thing is the, the load and the backlogs are growing. So, and, and kind of your experience, because I think you're ahead of the curve, given that you were having these thoughts and conversations in 2012 to 2014. How, how do we end up here? How do organizations actually end up with this much of a mismatch between capacity and you know, understanding of capacity and, and what's at, the work that's actually been booked, the work that's been committed, the, the work that's been promised to customers? Well, I, I think of how we ended up, end up here, that's the, the easy you know, there's a, there's a couple of reasons, and those are the, the. I think that's the easy side of it. the The hard side is okay. How do how do we fix it? And and that's a continued struggle. So the the I think the way we end up here with this problem is ideas are are easy, priorities change, and it's hard to stop work, right? And so you kind of look at those and you say, hey, you know, you come up with an idea, and it, and it may be very viable and a great business idea, but you want to start that, right? Because it may be urgent, but you've got other work that you've already committed to. And then it's really hard to stop that work. And kind of the further you get away from, you know, the teams, you know, the understanding of the what they're working on gets kind of less and less. So it's easy for, you know, sales or executives to kind of come up with these new ideas and then be like, hey, well, I want the teams to work on this, but they, they just don't have the mechanisms to visualize and communicate out. Well, we're already working on these things and we're already 200 or 300% overbooked. And if you add this one more thing, we're then 400% overbooked and everything's going to take longer. And I think there, there's a lot of that that also sits underneath this, this problem with virtualized work. And, and I don't know it's a problem per se, it's just the nature that virtualized work is something that you can't touch or see. And in a factory, you could walk up and you could see carts or you could see you know printers backed up. And you would know at least to stop the work. But in, in, in you know a virtualized environment, you can't see those things. The entire organization and still, you know, and we, we've been fighting this problem for years, we still struggle with it all the time. You know, it's tools that, you know, that, that you brought to market with, you know, Tastop and Viz that really help illustrate that to everyone to say like, look, this is how long things are going to take right now. If you add something else, it's not going to get better. You know, in my mind, it actually, it sometimes seems like it should be that similar. There's like two things you said, I think that are, that are so key right there. One is the, it's just the ability to see. And I think Scott, like you, the, I, the my experience has been the same, right? As the further that we get away from the team, that the team has a sense of its own capacity. Right? The team has a sense of its overload. The team has a sense when scope or priorities keep changing on it, how much it's thrashing. And somehow in manufacturing, and my experience of this was not, you know, was not the print shop, it was the, the thing where it really hit me over the head is being on the catwalk, right? And every large manufacturing line has this catwalk where executives get to look down, they get to see how work is flowing, they get to see, and I think one of the most interesting stories that was told to me at that time was, was how important it was in some cases for executives to see the rework area, right? The rework area is where you see quality problems compounding and, and basically if too many cars are there, there's something wrong. The action needs to be taken that hasn't been taken, that the and on cords you know, didn't do enough at that point. There's a systemic problem that we have with quality because too many cars are piling up and, and we see them piling up. So yeah, it, the, it's hard ahead. to see that in... In virtualized software, that's the yeah. So it's we. That's right. And in, in the end, we need this catwalk, the you know the raised platform, the where we can we 
where, where executives, whether the stakeholders, can actually get that real view of capacity, which is, I guess, brings me to what you've done, which I really want to dig into, is taking so much what you've done with teams, you know, both on the on the operations and infrastructure and services side and the development side. And I, I just really love this work on DevOps portfolio management, right? How we elevate the things that, or you've elevated the things that we've learned that work at that team level to the portfolio level and in these, you know, basically in these, in these three different domains. So can you just at a high level take us through that? And I'd love to dig into a couple of these things because I think sure. some of the answers of what that catwalk looks like uh, are, are in what you've got here. Yeah, so I mean, just to you know, credit where credits due. I mean, really, you know, what what when we talk about DevOps portfolio management in three domains, it really ties back to the Accelerate work that that Nicole Forsgren and team worked on for years. It, it really is a, is a way that we can talk about that in our organization and to other organizations of what's important at the portfolio level and at the the team levels. And I like to think of you know the you know, I've got a kind of nine box of of the of the three domains. I really like to think of that as a, you know, kind of a CIO, CTO kind of level discussion slide, where if I'm talking to a client or I'm talking to leaders in other organizations, I can talk about kind of these nine areas, three domains and the nine areas that are important, and then we can kind of dive down into the other areas. With, and really, there ends up being 38 high performance capabilities. 24 were in Accelerate, and the others were scattered through the state of DevOps reports. And then we can dig into those other areas and, and really kind of talk about really the, the performance levels and the, and the kind of the maturity um, at those other areas and where we would actually want to focus improvements. So, so take us, where, where should we start? So we've got your, your three domains are sure. technical practices, work management, and people and culture. Well, I mean, I, I think the, the other thing to kind of you know, tell you a little bit more context on why you know, I structured it like that and talk about DevOps like this is everyone asks you the question, what is DevOps, right? Or I, I get a lot of calls from our sales folks and our consulting folks, and they say, hey, we've got a client that wants DevOps. <laughs> they want to buy DevOps. They want to buy DevOps. I mean, that's the joke, right? <laughs> and, and it's it's the joke because they they definitely want DevOps, but it's like, it, and you know, the thing is, it's really hard to buy, <laughs> and uh, and we could help you, and it's not just a tool. So so this this is really the the portfolio management, the DevOps portfolio management, three and the three domains is my way to talk about the different things that kind of DevOps is and brings together. So the first is the technical practices, which is really what people go to when they think about DevOps, right? It's things like the CI, CD. It's really the stuff from, from Jez Humble's book on, on continuous delivery. It's architecture and security. Architecture is really important in DevOps, you know, really making, you know, being able to refactor code, making code op, you know, operable with architecture, you know, things like feature switches. And then it's observability. And that's really kind of taking production telemetry and feeding that back to the teams. So those are really kind of the three boxes of the technical practices. Then the work management, and, and Mick, this is your space that you love. This is really the, the stuff that is, you know, managing really in value streams and, and a portfolio. So not doing kind of that project-based work. Having lean work management practices, we talked about that in the um, in really the the print shop case, and holistic visibility, getting that holistic visibility uh, of the work, and the final box there is is I call kata and measurement. You see measurement all through the state of DevOps report, and you see that in the high performance capabilities. I put kata in there because I think that you know really what Toyota did with creating lean work and lean standardized work 
but creating an environment where, where they were coaching and teaching people to improve every day was really a key thing that, that I consider kind of part of those work management um, practices. And the final and just so important, you know, uh, a domain is just people and culture. You see this a lot in Accelerate. You see a lot in the State of DevOps report how important this is. And you can be great at technical practices. You can be great at work management. And if you're not great at the people and culture stuff, you'll never reach those higher levels of performance. And this is, you know, honestly, I've seen portfolios do fantastic on technical practices, decent on work management, but horrible on people and culture, and they have horrible performance. And it all makes sense. If your people aren't happy and you don't have a great culture, you're not going to reach those higher levels. And, and for us, these are things like you know, cross-functional, long-lived, and empowered teams. We call service ownership and, and leadership, which is really how we kind of think about owning really kind of the end-to-end development kind of operations components, and then leaders and, and managers who, who can actually um, uh, do those things. And the final is the culture, learning, and, and psychological safety, which is just so important uh, to have. So that's the, the three domains of the nine boxes. And um, I can give you a, a, a slide of that and you can attach it to the, uh, the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We would, that would be great. We'll put that in the additional materials. And before we dig into any of these boxes, I, you know, what really appeals to me about this is how these things, you, know, you need to think about them independently, these three domains, but how they're all required, right? And they reinforce each other. So you gave the example where people and culture just were not there, the other practices were. I, I actually know multiple examples where there was a lot of great focus on people and culture, but there's a lack of technical practices. So no matter how much you focus on that, if people can't, you know, they have to wait six to 12 months to see any of the impact of their work, well, guess what? They're not overly motivated, so... And, and I think that's important when it all come together. And kind of one of the, the current themes out there now that Ron Western just talked about is the, you know, the, the concept of technical maestros and leaders who are, are experts. And this was also in, discussed in David Silverman's work and then also in um, Admiral Richardson's is competence you know, as a leader also includes those technical capabilities and are the technical practices. And that is kind of so important because, yeah, I have seen the other one where you have a great culture, but, you know, not great work management, not great technical practices, and you get, you know, you don't get great results there either. So it really is 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 vital to bring those three things together. And, that, and the data in Accelerate shows us that. It shows us that you need all of those things. You need transformational leadership. Yep. You need... Uh, leaders that have a vision and can inspire, and they also have to be great at their craft, and, and and that's what the technical practices are really saying. Exactly. If these things are not in place, right, it's with the best culture, you can feel like the the system's working against you, right? But then, of course, if there's just focus on the on any one of these boxes, it's it, it's insufficient, right? We've got again, I think we've both seen it. Lots of organizations who only focus on technical practices, but everything happening upstream, all the work being passed to them. The way that the business is interacting with technology is fundamentally flawed because that, that work management layer isn't there. So again, I think this is just a, a great holistic view. And why don't you just pick a box, Scott, and let us uh, take take us on a journey through this? Because I think again, this is having a balanced view on these on these nine panes in these three areas. I think is so key. So oh, geez, where do you start? Um, they're all so important. That's the hard thing. So um, I I think we'll we'll probably. Well, I was going to say we'll skip the the technical practices, but I do want to hit on one thing there that's kind of important. The only reason to skip the technical practices is because that's what most people associate with DevOps. I do think the the concept of of the architecture and really how important that is to operability 
is is something I often kind of see missed. And so you can be great at CICD. And actually, I've seen this occur where you're really great at building the code and getting in a container and delivering that container somewhere into production, but it's still uh, a kind of mess to, to run. And so that's where these components of architecture are, are really kind of so vital. And the architecture is not just a, a software architecture thing, it's an operability. The best kind of canonical example I would say here is feature flags, right? I mean, that's an architectural construct, but it also is an architectural construct that has a tie to the operability in production and it really gets the development team involved in the discussion and understanding of how is is this feature that we are working on, how is it going to get work in production and how is it going to get turned on? And if we just give it to the ops folks to turn this thing on and it corrupts a whole bunch of data, how do we roll it back? And oftentimes, if you're just focused on getting your code in a container or on a VM, you're not really having those discussions. So those components of architecture and feature flags, I find is a really... You know, one, it's a decoupling concept, but also it's a concept that really kind of brings that operational domain into the team. And really, even if they don't have operations engineers on the team, which they should, but even if they don't, now they have to really kind of think through how is this going to be activated in production? And it's a very powerful thing. So that's the one I would hit on because it's something that comes up in a ton of conversations for me uh, a lot and is also something that you know, even if you're great at the CICD, that is kind of often missed. So the next box, you know, I think, you know, I, I go to probably one of maybe one of your favorites or at least one of the, the ones that you hit on a lot is, you know, the concept of, of lean work management and, and holistic visibility. I, I, this is one that is really hard to kind of get people sometimes to understand it really can be kind of kind of a game changer and if you don't really focus on this you you really kind of just create a, a lot of wait time and waste on the portfolio when i talk about holistic visibility it really means all of the work i think this is something we see especially in organizations that are siloed between different roles like if you have uh, an engineering organization and an operations organization that the work is stored kind of in different systems or and or like different you know projects or somewhere else and people are kind of working in their silo of work and they're doing a good job at that but they're not aware of the other kind of silos of work incidents are one we see a lot right i've got the ops team working on incidents and i've got the feature team working on features and i don't have holistic visibility of those same things and you know, we've got examples and we've seen them where <laughs> the customer is like, I want this feature done, but I also want this incident fixed. Yeah. But those two requests go to different organizations and you've got the customer that's unhappy because they have both an incident and a feature and neither of them are, are getting done, right? <laughs> because then you have the team that's fielding the incident eventually getting back to the team who wrote the code, but they're working on the next feature that the client's asking for and you've kind of got this, you know, this almost double blind problem where we don't have that whole list of work and we're not going and saying, maybe we should fix the incidents first before we start working on the next feature. And it's important to take that holistic list of work across all those different work types and also get your stakeholders involved in it. And the, you know, the, the key stakeholder is usually the product manager and to really bring them and make that list visible and surface to them and say, look, we've got, you know, 80% of our backlog is filled with incidents. 
you know, we have to fix those. We have to stop these other, these other things um, and to get them to be a stakeholder in that discussion as opposed to just creating more and more features that we can't finish that the client actually, you know, escalations are, are really around the incidents. And, and we, we've seen that occur a lot, this kind of double blind or we've seen double, triple, quadruple blind scenarios where you have four lists that all different people are working on with different priorities. So yeah. I think that one's really important. If you if figure that out, you can have great results and, and, you know, both operationally customer satisfaction, and then additionally your, your flow through the system improves significantly if you can figure that out. Well, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, and that double blind thing is I think exactly the right image, right? Because we've got, and it's, everyone's trying, right? Everyone, a set of people or a set of stakeholders need these features. You know, there might be, you know, salespeople, delivery people, someone of that sort who need these features for the client to either, you know, Expand, make them more successful, get get the next deal. While of course the incidents are going to, you know, what's going to prevent the client actually being successful. So, the you know, I love how you painted Scott. Where you know, we we need that to be visible holistically, and we need the other things that are invisible. I think as you and I have discussed at length, right? Invisible to the client, to the customer, like tech debt improvements and tech debt reduction. We know those are not visible to the customer at all, and that's that's the challenge, right? Where that's not visible to the business or the customer. But if it's not, if we're not investing in it, then of course we know the incidents will come. So, how I guess how do you approach it? Because I think that the, the challenge here that I think a lot of a lot of us now understand we need to make. Well, Dominica de Grandes told us all a long time, quite a while ago, that we need to make all this work visible, uh, and I think we've we've got ways of doing that. But in terms of the the actual conversations because I think what's what's so important that you're doing here is that you've got a, a way of elevating this to the business conversation uh, and to leadership you know within your organization and others how how do you approach it right when it is it can just be difficult to convince someone that investment technical debt and delaying those features is going to give them a better economic outcome for their customer when of course they're trying to deliver to their for their customer yesterday. Yeah, well, I I'll tell you it's hard and I, I think that's what I said when I said well how we got here there's a there's a whole series of uh, a, a series of um, reasons for that but it's it's how do you get out is is right. really really the hard part. It, it, it's a couple things, I, and I mentioned kind of the product management relationship. And you know, I, I'm an engineering and, and operations leader. I take a vested interest in building that relationship with the product management team, and continually having the discussion around the importance of one seeing all the work and having them understand, you know, what that does to the teams, and especially getting them, you know, getting them on the page list for incidents. So the product managers, they get the major incident pages, right? It goes out, right? I'm like, hey, you're on the page list. You know, they don't have to wake up and get on the call, but... Uh, yeah, that, know, I, I like that. That's a good tip. Yeah, that that's uh, that's what we do. And, and I, you know, at, at first there was a lot of pushback, you know, and then, you know, after a while I start getting questions like, was that a big one? Like, what happened? Like, yeah. um, and so there's things like that, but also sharing in the goals. You know, we have, I mentioned some of my presentations, this concept of an impact minute. Think of an impact minute as the the size of an outage and a failure group size, like how many customers you impacted times the number of minutes. That's the simplest way to think about it. Yeah. There's some subtleties, but it, it really gives you kind of a size. And you know, we have impact minute reductions that we continue to work to reduce those. And we have those on our goals. You know, years ago I went to my product management peers, they're my peers, and I said, Hey, I'd really like you to share in these goals. Their commentary to me was like, why should we share in those goals? We can't affect those. And I'm like, you're wrong. So you control the investment for the product. I want you to basically 
share these goals with me and my, my engineering and operations teams. And then we're going to look at the whole backlog of all the things, the incidents, and we're going to make decisions on where we want to invest to basically accomplish shared goals of reducing you know, the impact to our customers on, on the system. That was a little bit eye-opening. One, the discussion was, was tough and eye-opening, but then getting them as stakeholders in those those measurements on on what this meant to our customers and um was was a key kind of galvanizing point too and then you know i really think the one other thing i work a lot with on that relationship but also just really continually elevating and making visible the work the tech debt work and the reason why it's so important and some of that's just a discussion like you know we're we're doing a lot of work now to make to improve developer productivity and simplify the technologies and really, you know, getting examples that like, hey, when we change this, it takes us two weeks because this technology is really difficult. So if we change out that technology, which may take us two or three months, then these types of changes, and we do a lot of those types of changes, we can do those now, you know, really easily in a, in a day or two because the technology is a lot easier for us and we have a lot more skills. There's some like we, you know, might have boutique technologies that only, you know, certain folks can change. And being on more standard technologies, we have more people that can do that work. It's another example. So we continually kind of take that list and make sure that that the visibility to that is 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 there with those product stakeholders. That's an, kind of another te- technique. So to summarize, you know, building those relationships, sharing kind of operational goals, and that whole list of work, and then continuing to elevate, you know, the technical debt and the benefits that that brings. And they want stuff faster and cheaper more most of the time and and really kind of talking to them in that in that language is, is very important well, yeah and that's exactly what I've noticed that, that you do so effectively is talking to them with that economic language but but I think it's you know the that, that trick of actually having them see and feel incidents and wonder how much of a problem that is or what the impact of it would be I think I think that's a, that that's also really interesting right is that just to get them involved to get them you know looking at the at the production line and and looking at what some of the, you know seeing what some of the team sees but yep. then Scott for the bigger picture things so when you you know you've got i guess my question is so you're bringing them into the kind of into that into the stream which is awesome but is there some cadence at which you reinforce these things during planning what so what i'm leading to is i've noticed that organizations who do strike a good balance but you know between features defects risks that's between balancing balancing work in the end for a customer outcome but but not ignoring the things or, or not over investing in tech debt when when actually you know th- this is a value stream that you need to get off of or strangle out. Do you have a regular cadence at which you do do this kind of planning? Is it a release planning cadence? I guess how do you approach that in terms of making some of the the, the more forward looking things, changing team structures, changing how you look at managing services and the rest? How do you play the longer game? Yeah, so I mean we um, we we have quarterly. Quarterly cadence for for planning the, what I would say kind of the big rocks and so we we use Epic so we use uh, you know mechanisms in Safe you know for portions of the, the of the planning so we have PI planning every quarter and that's when we have the whole list of Epics and we intake the, that big stuff and and really kind of decide what the next quarter is going to look like and then at and and that's when you know we look at we we have an investment. You know, basically, investment portfolio or pie. We kind of look at and we we say, uh, you know, one portfolio. You know, sixty percent of the work may be client driven, twenty percent may be tech debt, and the other twenty percent may be you know um, team 
driven improvements, for example. Those may be how that portfolio is broken down, or it might be 10% to security. And so those, those are generally set, those percentages are generally set kind of at that time too, depending on the priorities that we, that we see. Like, so maybe there is a lot more tech debt work, or maybe we have like, um, you know, a big audit or compliance kind of coming up and we have to swell like the security investment, you know, that quarter. So everyone's working on that. And so those epics are done on a big, on that quarterly. And then features, which are really what kind of roll up and make in the epics, you know, we used to do those quarterly. Um, and that was, you know, to like try to decide all the features that you're going to do also and, and pre-plan all the features that are going to get not the next quarter. And, and we started to understand the problems kind of with that. So with features, we actually then kind of go to weekly intake for features. We call it weekly grooming. And it's pretty powerful because now you're not like bottlenecking all of that feature, you know, planning and intake into kind of one quarterly event. We're doing weekly intake. Like here's a new feature that a client is talking about and they're, they're, they're asking for this probably in the next two months. And, you know, we, we try to leave spare capacity so we can even kind of get those in. And so that's kind of one key thing. So we don't do big batch planning of features. We're doing the 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 batch planning of the big epics. And we 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 do change those that they need, but those are the big, the big rocks. But the other thing that we started doing the last couple of years, and you'll see this in a couple of presentations, is something that we call, you know, rod or release on demand. And you, we used to just, we used to do that quarterly planning, plan all the features, and then let's release them all on one day. So what we started to do and using some of the architectural constructs and that I mentioned why that box is important to kind of tie it to that is we then started saying, well, why don't we just start releasing those features when we finish them? So, you know, plan big rocks quarterly, intake features weekly, and then release features when they're done had just an amazing effect on kind of flow in the system yeah. because now... You know, I do the big planning because I still need to do vision and decide on priorities and investments and stuff like that. I can adjust granularity on a weekly basis on what my finer grain priorities are. And then I can then get that work out of the system as soon as I'm done with it. And then people can say, hey, let me pick up the next yeah. set of work. So it had just amazing you know, really kind of amazing change to the portfolio when you kind of get through kind of all those changes to kind of increase flow and increase how work um, flows through the system in a, in a uh, what do I say, much more kind of cadence-based, but also a much more flow-based way. That's awesome. And I think that, you know, just so many key things in there, right? And I think I completely agree with the approach. It's 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 our approach, the value streams I'm involved with as well. And I think that you, you said something so important there at, at, the, at the very start of that, right? Is that you're not only allocating, balancing that work between you know, work around incidents and features and understanding those capacities, but but you, I think you said 10% allocation for actually improving flow, right? And and it's amazing. This is the other thing. So the two things that have been amazing and and disturbing to me in terms of actually seeing the data out there across organizations is just again just the amount of flow load, the amount of whip, the the size of the backlogs and backlogs and the fact that they're growing. But then the other thing that that has been even more surprising to me is just how little capacity is allocated to improvement, right? To that to that ideal of improvement of daily work, right? So you're yeah. saying. And I think this is critical, right? We, you know, I, I know we do this for us. Improving our flow efficiency 
is a top level OKR, right? Top level objective for the entire organization, right? Because oftentimes it'll you'll you'll have dependencies on other parts of the organization. You'll have dependencies on be it on on legal, on infrastructure, on on the way that in the end that the business models and the sales functions and and these other things. So you deliberately allocate on a and by the way we do also check it. You know we do it annually and quarterly as well. Uh, and dovetail it with our with our planning. You're doing that as part of your release plan and your PI planning. Yeah. So th- there's a couple things that that we do. I, I guess I can elaborate a little bit more. So there's one um, on tech debt um, that you know we those are kind of the big tech debt stuff, um, and those are um, generally planned and kind of intake. So we might be porting off a commercial database to open source. You know, when we set to public cloud, those are things. That are generally in this kind of bucket of, of tech data or technical kind of work. I mean, they aren't necessarily client or product facing features. And we allocate, you know, a percentage to that, you know, somewhere between 20 to 30, you know, sometimes a higher percent. And then we, we also have this bucket. And, you know, years ago, we kind of came up uh, when we were going through some of these transitions and, and we were struggling and kind of really looking at this concept of empowerment, but also the improvement of daily work, came up with a concept, not, not that it's rocket science, but we basically said, hey, like what we're really talking about is, is helping people improve their work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And let's take time and give it to the people to do what they want to make things better. And in other words, we said like, here is 20% of time and you figure out what you want to do with that. And, and what I said is I said, the only thing I require is that you document what you did so that we can celebrate it and publish it, right? And, and say, and so that at the end of a, you know, a PI or, you know, we get to the next PI planning, we can say, look, here are all the things that the teams did to make their environments better, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, it did a couple things. One is it got that concept of daily improvement and it gave space for people to do that. But it also really built the empathy between leadership and folks that we truly cared and we did and we kind of put our money where our mouth was, which was like, look, we are giving you this time and money to make your your lives better. And you know, we we you know stood hand in hand with product management on that too, to say, like, this is important. You know, this isn't something you business case and say, what return am I gonna get? You know, this is something that is is, is vital to improving employee morale, improving people's lives, all that stuff. And we really, you know, we, we truly, I, I truly believe that. And, um, you know, I need my product managers to be in, in the same place with that too, so that we could, you know, make that investment. Yeah, I, I think that's that's just an amazing approach. One, one thing that's really close, we've, we've had something similar with, we do our, our quarterly planning, there's a, we have a, this jog week, right? Where there's a week that's dedicated to experimentation and in the end, very similar to what you're doing, and and we've made it be a, just a, maybe a little bit more specific, where it's about experience to improve flow. But right, that can be finding a problem with the infrastructure that's causing all these incidents, right? That can be and creating a, a little automation, creating you know fixing something in a in a test suite, or uh, you know just coming up, you know looking at a bottleneck externally. We've it, it's been interesting. We've some of these experiments, you know, they, they do span outside of engineering. It's a little bit harder when oh, yeah. it's when it's limited to a week, so. We've now we're basically, and that's why I love your your basically much more continuous approach to this, where we've realized we actually across the the release cycles we want teams to continually experiment with identifying their own bottlenecks and be running 
multiple experiments in parallel. Sometimes you're wrong, right? So sometimes you think this thing is this this is the source of your bottleneck, but un, until you actually try to resolve it, uh, you, you don't you, you know you, you don't quite have the right hypothesis for there, and you experiment and then and then you move on. So. No, the fact that you've actually baked this into daily work, I think, I think is, I think is critical, and I think it's just so important. Other organizations, you know, look to what you've done and and apply the same thing because so often these teams have no capacity for work, and then of course the culture problems and the burnout and everything triggers because they're not actually able to, you know, get get the, all those weight states out of their way, and those things fundamentally are just are just frustrating and a, and a death nail to culture. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, bottom line is is when you cap people to hundred percent. They don't. They don't have time to improve, right? So they're just going to take the next feature off their backlog and, you know, start grinding that out. When we create space for them and also set the expectation that they're empowered to make things better, amazing things happen. You know, the stuff yeah. that you would never think of. You're like, you know, the, they come up with. I'm like, really? That was a problem. And yeah. uh, you know that that's you know it's 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 fascinating to see you know the, that creativity. For making stuff better, you know, just kind of get unleashed at scale. Yeah, and the customer gets more in the long run as well, right? Yeah, yeah, because, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, well, Scott, I think we've made it through what two boxes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of the nine, let's uh, maybe let's uh, let's pick let's pick one more. Okay, you know, one of the ones that's pretty important is kind of this this concept of service ownership and 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 leadership. And th- there's two things in that box, and and they're a bit related, but. And they do kind of cover two two things that um, are, are vital. And you know, when we kind of went through our transition to really create, you know, cross-functional teams that really kind of build and run to, you know, give the, you know, what what is often um, said, we 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 came to, came to the conclusion that it's it's not necessarily only a team thing. We need you know leaders that can really own the service and you know we call that role a service owner and and we needed really you know very strong technical leaders that could say hey i can i can you know lead a set of teams that that both understand how to engineer products and to operate those products and so we we really kind of talked about that in this term of 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 service ownership and we call the, these individuals service owners you know, it was um, it was our way to really kind of put a name to those characteristics that we wanted. And I think now hearing some of Ron Western stuff when he talks about a technical maestro, and we also talk about in uh, Admiral Richardson's uh, discussion, he talks about you know leaders have to have competence. It was really our our phrase to attach to those things to really say we needed these service owners that could really embody both the engineering and operational capabilities. And of course, the leadership capabilities. Those are all the other things that you see, kind of in the Dora, the Dora research around transformational leadership. You know, can you can you lead? Do you have inspirational communication, a vision? You know, do you know where you're going, and, and can you talk about that for the next five years for your teams? Those are all things that are really kind of embodied in that. Excellent. And so, question though, because you've got this. There's there's the value stream management box, which we've kind of edged in on. How how do you actually? I think this is a Interesting question. I know it's it's one that you know my thinking on it's evolved a lot. How do you actually combine that service ownership with these you know in the end these product value streams? Of course, and some of the some of the products being these internal platforms and you know operational services and so on. So so how is your thinking on that front evolved? Because I, I agree, both yeah. are key. Yeah. So so the the value stream of portfolio ran- management really kind of captures, I think, two key things. One that 
you know, do, are you aligning the work for kind of value delivery? So it's really kind of at right out of your book, Mick, and it's saying you, you've got a value stream. You don't have like these kind of siloed handoffs all the way across the org. You, you basically have organized the value around a product and you're flowing the work through there. And then you're investing in that value stream. Portfolio management piece and captures kind of then the the component of you're doing that across your portfolio, but also you're treating this portfolio like a set of products, and you are investing in this product and portfolio management capability. So, in in other words, you're investing in product management leadership, which is which is so vital. And this is where software engineering firms, I, I think, really have a leg up on traditional kind of IT firms because they have a heritage of really strong product management. And that's so important because the product managers are really the ones that are kind of taking the market-facing requirements. They're, they're working with the internal teams on, you know, of course, hey, we got technical debt and you fix. They're, they're trading off, you know, those kind of priorities. So kind of how that works is really we look at our kind of service owners as really the partners to those product managers on the other side. And so you've got the product managers who are managing kind of the investment and we're, they've got we've got a portfolio of these product managers across the portfolio. They're working with those service owners that own the engineering and the operations of that service to basically you know store that investment and really kind of decide how to how to get the the optimal value out of that out of the that product and set of services. Yeah, and I think it's it, exactly it's it's making sure that value streams. And tell me if I'm overstating it or you think about it slightly differently. But but in the end that. For each value stream that that runs as a service, it's that the service ownership, all of the operations, is part of that value stream. Right? It's not Correct. just handoff. You're responsible. You, or, yes, and yeah. and you know, and of course, there's always exceptions. Like you look in team topologies, you've always got these things where you have dependencies on other teams yep. that kind of might be their own value stream, but you know, they're 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 tied to a, a different value stream. So there's always exceptions. You're yep. never going to get this perfect. Like everything just lines up in one you know perfect. But you know, we really strive. You know, for eighty to ninety percent of it to be aligned that way, and to then also have a product manager that lines up with that value stream that's this is the stored of that investment. And we we even treat our platforms that way. We have a product manager of the platform value stream. The platform value stream is the infrastructure. Awesome. Um, so and then also um, you know product manager of security and you know like and that's being made that investment is cross all value streams right so that one's not perfectly lined up because you know we're we're making cross product investments in security absolutely but I think I think it's this kind of thinking and even though you know it's it's it, like you said it's never lined it's never perfect but it's bringing back to the start of one of the points you made Scott it's that that's what causes the right architectural decisions to be made right. Where where you're actually your know, value stream is is architected for easier operations and observability, and you make the right kinds of decisions, like like implementing feature flags rather than forking the code base and or doing other crazy things, right? Is yeah. is uh so yeah, I th- that's I think that's I think that's so key to this approach, right? Is that, that having the value stream alignment and including service ownership as part of that actually drives the architecture, and I think as some of the points we've talked about less here, the team structure. And, and ownership into in the right direction. Yep. So let's uh, we're we're at time here, but there's probably another three podcasts worth of content that you've actually you've uh, you've outlined here, Scott. We will absolutely you know point people to the work and the and the resources. But anything else you want to leave our listeners with in terms of you know heading in this direction that that in the, that that you've been on for for years now and have come come to such a good spot on. 
well, a couple things. I, I appreciate the discussion. I always uh, learn something in this and always come away. I'm like, there's certain tweaks I should make in uh, both the way I talk about this stuff and maybe the slides. So you might see a few changes. You know, th- that uh, being said, I want to, you know, kind of emphasize um, my gratitude for this. And then also to the to the listeners, you know, you can you can find me on Twitter at, at, at Scott Peru. You can DM me if you are any questions. You can also find me on LinkedIn. But, you know, DevOps, it's really important. Uh, it can really transform your organizations if you really focus on improving the technical practices, uh, work management, and also very important, the people and culture. Those are really the kind of three domains that make up make up DevOps. And uh, improving all three of those things can really move your your performance kind of upper level into the high performance category. Awesome. Again, thank you, Mick. Yeah, no, and exactly. I think it's, and the, the whole point is that you're able to elevate these benefits of the organization. I think this is a, this is a, a great framework for thinking about that. So thank you so much, Scott. See you again soon. A huge thank you to Scott for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlus1 or Project to Product. You can reach out to Scott on Twitter, at Scott Crew, or via LinkedIn. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all offer proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.